Hello, and welcome to this Soulless Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit soullesschurch.com. Well, here as we get into these last five chapters of Ecclesiastes, I want to preach this morning from this title. The title of my message is simply Real World Wisdom. Real World Wisdom. Wisdom. Now, if you, again, have been joining us for any length of time, I, I think that you could really sum up in two words um, what, what Solomon has been leading us to see in the past seven chapters. Up until this point, what Solomon has been giving us is a vision of life in the real world. This is how it really is in the real world, not just sort of the fantasy world that we try to create and imagine uh, we, we tend to, especially as Christians, sort of wear these rose-colored glasses. Do you know what I'm talking about? And act like everything's okay when it's sometimes not. There are some real issues and problems and challenges that we face, and Solomon doesn't hold back in describing those. He, he's describing life in the real world. And he's sort of doing this experiment of putting God aside and saying, well, let's look at life in the real world as if God were optional. If this is all there is, then what do we have? What's the point to our work? What follows our death? What's the whole purpose of being righteous or wise? He really gets us to think about these kinds of things. And his conclusion is it's all vanity. It's a Hebrew word, the word hevel. And it simply means a wisp of vapor or a cloud of smoke. What he's saying is in life, to try to reach out for some real meaning and purpose, apart from a relationship with God in the real world, it will leave you empty-handed. Like trying to grab a handful of smoke. It doesn't work out. You see, that's been his conclusion. And it's been helpful for all of us. For all of us. It's helpful for the non-believer. For the non-believer to really think about, what am I living for? Is there a meaning and purpose to this direction I'm going down without God? But it's also helpful for the believer. It's helpful for the believer to, like Jesus, like Solomon, to be honest about the challenges that we face and not sugarcoat our problems with easy Christian answers. Because it's in these depths of difficulty that we actually find a greater gratitude for Jesus. We actually find who Jesus really is, not just surface-level Jesus, but deep in the darkest pits of life Jesus. Jesus, who even can save us from vanity. Now, again, that's been the big idea of this book, a real-world explanation. And for us, what we would understand by real world is we would say a fallen world, not the world that God designed. In fact, if you look up from chapter 8, this is the last verse we looked at in chapter 7 last week. Solomon said this. This is the only thing I've found, chapter 7, verse 29, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. We know that the world that God intended and created was a world that he declared as good. He even made man in his image as good. There was goodness and blessing and fullness, but man, us, me, you, we have through our sin nature sought out all sorts of inventive ways to distance ourselves from God. And as a result, all of creation has spun into this place of futility and vanity. But now in chapter 8, Solomon is going to begin to shift his attention and his focus. I think if there's one question that Solomon would have us ask in light of all that we've studied here would be this question. In light of the fact that this is the real world, a life of vanity apart from God, and a, life, and a world that has fallen, here would be the question, how then shall we live? 
I mean, it's great, right? Life is vain, it's very difficult, but like when you go to work tomorrow, what is it that you and I most desperately need to navigate life in this world? And if there's one word that Solomon would give us, it would be this word on the screen. It's the word wisdom. We need wisdom to navigate life in the real world, in the, this fallen world we find ourselves in. That's actually what he says in chapter 8, verse 1. You see it there? He says, in light of all these truths, chapters 1 through 7, he says, who is like a wise man? In this day and age, wisdom stands out. It's like, whoa, that, did you see that? It's like a unicorn, a wise man. Look at this wise man in this difficult times. He says, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine. It's amazing the testimony and, the rep- and just, just the light that we can be for God in these dark times by just living life in wisdom, navigating in wisdom. It says, a man's wisdom makes his face shine and the sternness of his face is changed. Solomon is saying, this is what we need. We need wisdom. But I want to point this out. The wisdom that Solomon describes in this chapter is not just any old wisdom as like uh, the kind of um, uh, thought that a creative person would give to a difficult scenario. When we think about wisdom, we, we can't just think about insight, you know, like you had this real big issue, you got some counsel from someone, they gave you some advice, and you just said, wow, you are just so wise, all right? So wise. That's not what Solomon is getting at. For Solomon, the idea of wisdom has to do with skillful living. Skillful living. I want you to notice chapter 9. We're going to, by the way, we're going to be studying the Bible here this morning. Welcome to Solace Church. We don't gather to hear TED Talks. We're here to study. I mean, really, that is all we really seek to do is what does the Bible say? Amen? So let's just read what the Bible says. Look at chapter 9. Verse 13, look at what Solomon says about wisdom. He says, This wisdom I have seen also under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it, besieged it, and built great snares around it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man. And he, by his wisdom, that's verse 15 of chapter 9, delivered the city... Yet no one remembered that same man. Then I said, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised. Words of the wise spoken, I'm sorry, and his words are not heard. Words of the wise spoken quietly should be heard rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So you see Solomon here, he's lifting up wisdom. He's saying there's a man in culture who by every cultural metric, we would say he's not that valuable. He's a poor man, but what he lacks in material wealth, he has in spiritual wealth. He's a man of great wisdom, and by his wisdom, notice it here, he delivered the city. So we're talking about skillfulness and living. I got another one for you. Go to chapter 10. We're already almost done with the whole book. Check us out. Chapter 10, verse 8. Look at what it says. Chapter 10, verse 8. He kind of describes foolishness. Look at this. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent. So just kind of looney tunes it in your mind. What do you see there? I see some stuff, okay? He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits wood may be endangered by it. Okay, so these are like what we would call epic fails in our culture, all right? It just, it doesn't seem and look wise, all right? These are like my favorite Instagram accounts, by the way, to follow. Bible, verse 10. If the ax is dull and one does not sharpen the edge then he must use more strength. But wisdom brings 
success. So what's the saying? Work smarter, not right. So Solomon's like, guys, I came up with that, first of all, all right? But here's Solomon talking about how we are approaching our life. I mean, let's look at our lives. How we're navigating it right now in this real world. Is there wisdom being used in your life? Are you living skillfully? Now, as we talk about wisdom, we talk about this skillful living. Solomon speaks very highly of how to live in this difficult world. But um, Solomon has an understanding of wisdom that is inseparable. I want you to hear this. It's inseparable from a relationship with God. So much so that even Proverbs says that the smartest person in the world that says there is no God is a fool. According to Psalm, according to Scripture, true wisdom, James 3 tells us, comes from above. True wisdom comes from above. The Bible actually says in 1 Timothy 1 that God alone is wise. If we're going to really talk about what it means to be wise, you know that verse 2, I just think also of 1 Corinthians where Paul says that the gospel itself is foolishness to the wisdom of this age. Earthly wisdom, that's not wise. I mean, why? I've heard people, why would God send his own son to die on a cross? It's foolishness, the Bible says, to those who are perishing. And God has, has done that very thing through the gospel to show off his wisdom. His ways are far above our ways. His wisdom is far above our wisdom. You see, true wisdom cannot truly be attained separate from God. This kind of skillful living that Solomon is talking about, you'll see it. It just bleeds through every word that he writes here in the second half of this book. It's found with, listen to this closely, true wisdom is only found in a living relationship with a living God. True wisdom. Only found in a living relationship with a living God. By the way, a living relationship, it's alive. Now, you might know a verse here or there and you apply it, but I'm talking about the kind of wisdom that's going to get you through tomorrow only comes through walking with Jesus. Close and personal. I think of Proverbs 13, 20, which says this. Look at this verse. It says that if you walk with the wise, you're going to become wise. Um, it says, for a companion of fools suffers harm. How many of you guys have experienced this firsthand? You grew in wisdom through wise company. Now, is there more wise company than God? Of course not. So apply this principle to your walk with the Lord. Imagine walking with the one who alone is wise. You're going to become wise. And that's what Solomon is pointing to. The value of living skillfully in such a difficult time, in such a way that we are, it's amazing what a life of wisdom can do for someone who's not walking with God. It's amazing the kind of gospel that preaches. Now, can I remind us, by the way, that the reason why that brings people to Jesus is that this is what the, gospel, the nature of the gospel is, right? The nature of the gospel is that we, by sin, have been all up in our own foolishness. And our foolishness is not just kind of like, oopsie, I'm foolish. It's the foolishness that separates us from God forever. The good news of the gospel is that it, God in his wisdom, in a way that supersedes anything we could come up with, he's a God of infinite love. And though we were separate from him, he sent his son Jesus into the world to bring us back into relationship with him. The Bible says that we've been reconciled to God through Jesus. Which needs to be, by the way, like the source of our hope for wisdom in life. 
The fact that Jesus paid the price on the cross for me to be brought back into relationship with God means this, that now my security in my relationship with God is based on what he did. And so the wisdom I need tomorrow is not going to come from me being good enough to earn it from God. It comes from this relationship that Jesus has allotted me through his sacrifice. Does that make sense? That's got to be our hope in this, you know. And then we start to just experience the fun of following Jesus, you know. Like the, the joy of he's mine and I'm his forever. And now I get to walk with him because of all that Jesus did and grow in him and learn from him. The wisdom that comes through walking with him through the gospel of Jesus. And that really, let me say this, that really is the focus of the last five chapters of Ecclesiastes. So I'm going to help us all have a, a good grip, I hope, on the entire book of Ecclesiastes this morning. I think with just this divide. Uh, the first seven chapters, what we looked at for the past 10 weeks, um, has been what we've called visions of vanity. So it's what I said earlier. It's Solomon giving us visions of life in that real world. Now, as you get into chapter 8, all the way through, through chapter 12, Solomon moves from visions of vanity to what we would call words of wisdom. So maybe this could have been like a second series. I don't know. Um, but only God knows. Uh, what we do know is we're going to try to finish it, okay? So um, words of wisdom. That, that's what would have been these last five chapters. And you see it, right? As even, we even just read a couple of those verses. The more you read uh, throughout these five chapters, you just see Solomon constantly advocating for this relationship with God that brings wisdom in our lives. And uh, he does so by navigating us through five realities of life in the real world. So, so that's kind of what he's been doing. Like, this is the real world, okay? Get out of the fantasy world, okay? Life is not Disneyland, okay? Let's snap back to reality, turn Disney Plus off for a second. This is the real world, which is like so much of parenting right now, I feel like, with our kids. It's, it's as they're growing, and we love that they're using their imagination, but it's like, and you don't want to kill that, like, this is the real world, you know? Like, but the other day, Evie in the car, she goes, Daddy, when I grow up, she might say it to Mommy, probably Mommy, Mommy, when I grow up, can I be a princess? And what do you do? You go, yeah, yeah, sweetie, you are your daddy's princess, you know? And she's like, no, daddy, okay? That's not what I'm asking, right? She's like, like, really? And, and it's like, okay, do I give her the real world? Now, there are such things, I think, today as like real princesses, right? Okay, so I was like, yeah. You can marry some prince, you know? A godly man, right? And... The real world, the real world, right? But, but I think Solomon's been helping us with the same thing, right? Helping us see life in the real world. Now, he gives us some words of wisdom, and he takes us through, as we're joking here, he takes us through some real world uh, reality. So here's what he's going to say. He's going to say, this is how it is in the real world. We, we all tomorrow are going to walk into, right now we're living in, we should say, a world like this. This is what it's like. And this is how we're to be a light to the world around us by living skillfully. You with me? So here, here let's go through these. We're going to get through all five chapters. It's going to be a blast. We're going to say amen, and we're going to go to lunch. It's going to be awesome, okay? Uh, real world wisdom. Here's the first real world scenario. Uh, the first thing that Solomon tells us is to honor God. The world we live in is a world in a world of power and authority. Honor God in a world of power and and authority. He tells us there in chapter 8, I got the references up there uh, for you guys. Chapter 8, verse 2, I say, here's some of Solomon's wisdom, skillful living. He says, keep the king's commandment, 
chapter 8, verse 2, for the sake of your oath to God. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand for an evil thing, for he does whatever pleases him. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful. And a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment. Verse 6, though the misery of man increases greatly. Verse 7, for he does not know what will happen. For who can tell him what will occur? Now, no one has power over the spirit to retain the spirit, and no one has power in the day of death. That's important. There's no release from that war, and the wickedness and wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. Verse 9, all this I have seen and applied my heart to every work that is done under the sun. There is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. Now Solomon, writing this from his royal throne of power and authority, lets us know the real world is a place of power and authority. It's a place of governing authorities. It's a place of moms and dads. It's a place of bosses. It's a place of law enforcement. It's a place of local and national governing authorities. The world we live in, broken as it is, is a place of authority. And it kind of sounds self-serving here for Solomon to be like, do what the king asks you to do as a king, right? But Solomon is speaking really to how, again, we can be wise in this reality. Now, let me say this when it comes to power and authority. We are living in a time right now where there's a generation, the Generation X, the Z, the Y, all that jazz, the millennial generation is um, most prominently known for being what we would call an anti-authoritarian generation. This is what we're seeing rise up. Uh, by, they start saying, this is the big word, right, by the droves, the droves, that's a really popular word, but today large masses of young people are moving away from an organized, God-given, say like, let's say like faith communities with spiritual authority. And, and we're seeing more and more movement away from sort of this communal life together, submitting to one another, submitting to godly leadership. And, and today in our generation, we have a lot more people moving more towards individualism, self-autonomy. I am my own power, and I'm not going to give it to anyone else. Um, and it's, it's an independent a way to approach life. It's a very sad way to approach life. It's a very Western way to approach life. Uh, today, it's not about how do my decisions affect my community. It's how do the decisions of the community affect me. It's very self-centered, counter to, by the way, the culture that the Bible was written in, which is a culture of, of interdependence and qualified leadership with submission. Now, here's what I want to say. Before we knock on, you know, those younger folk and the rap music, okay, I think there's a lot of good, I think, listen, I don't think it's good where it's headed, but there's a lot of good reasons as to why that's happening. By nature, by the way, as human beings, we're naturally rebellious. There's, that's, there's something in us that doesn't like to submit to what someone tells me to do, right? Just me? Oh, you guys all go the speed limit? Okay, my bad, all right. It doesn't help when a lot of the cultures that we've grown up in had people in those places of power who abused their power. And instead of being servant leaders, they had those beneath them serve them, and they used what God gave them without the fear of God, and they, uh, they leveraged it for their own gain. 
So I, I, it's almost like I sit back and I see kind of being where I am at 31, this unique age to kind of like have a foot in both generations a bit. Um, makes me feel like I'm much older than I am. I'm not. But I, I see the, the contrast there. And isn't it amazing how Jesus offers us this like better way to both of us, right? Could you look at Jesus? And, and Jesus, he models perfectly what submission is to leadership, doesn't he? Not my will, but your will be done, Father. I'm going to do what my Father has sent me to do. I'm going to lay aside all my rights and privileges, and I'm going to model submission. It's beautiful. Yet at the same time, Jesus is modeling leadership, isn't he? I'm going to wash the feet of my disciples. Russ, a couple weeks ago, taught on the disciples trying to leverage their relationship with Jesus. Jesus, I want a good seat in heaven, all right? You know what I'm saying? I want either the number one or the number two. I ain't sitting in that back row. Let me get right next to your throne. And Jesus goes, you don't even know what you're asking. That's how people in your culture lead. That's how they lord. They use their authority to get something for themselves. But the way of the kingdom is if you want to be first, you're last. If you want to be great, you serve. If you're too big to serve too small to lead. This is the nature of the kingdom. Jesus models this by giving up his very life. So, so this is, by the way, this is all wrapped up in the gospel of what he did. And that informs and that transforms how we approach power, doesn't it? We can't follow this same Jesus and not submit to our bosses at work. Not submit to the godly leadership that, that this same Jesus has put in our lives. We can't follow Jesus and leverage our positions of power for selfish gain. This gospel of who this Jesus is, it should inform and transform how we approach those things. And the reason why this is so applicable, I, th I think, to all of us, Solomon speak in our language, because every one of us in this room, to some degree, you're either in power, you have some degree of power, whatever that is, whatever you're, whether that's the kingdom of your bedroom, okay? You have some power, all right? Uh, you, you have some authority over even your own body, which, by the way, doesn't belong to you. So, like, let's think about this. Everybody has some degree of power. And every one of us, to some degree, is living under power and authority. As much as we like to think that we're the, own, we're the kings of our own lives, we're not. It's a lowercase k. And there's higher ups and there's higher authorities over that. So, so here's what we need. We need some wisdom. And, and the wisdom that Solomon gives us, I think it's so huge. It's found in knowing God. Again, that's what we talked about. Here he talks about how the way that we navigate this, with this, knowing this Jesus, is we have to think through the mindset of how can I honor God? How can I honor God in this? Now, if I'm under leadership... Under authority, here's some ways that he says you can honor God. He says, keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. So, I love this, ready? Do what you're asked. Well, I don't know, because sometimes I don't really agree. Right, right. Do what you're asked, right? Solomon's like, keep what you're commanded to do. Notice this, as a sake, for the sake of your oath to God. Isn't that interesting? So Paul says this in Ephesians 5 when he, when he calls for husbands to love their wives self-sacrificially as Christ loved the church. And he calls the wives to follow their husband's leadership and submit to their husbands as the church does to Jesus. And, and Paul says it the same way. He says, wives, submit to your husband as unto the Lord. 
I'm honoring God by doing this. You see, even though I disagree with my boss, even though he's hopelessly incompetent, and even though I disagree with everything he's doing, I can honor God through submission despite disagreement. That's a, by the way, that's way easier said than done. That's the challenges of most of our lives. Now, right now you're going, okay, hold on, Andrew. What if my boss tells me to kill someone? Gotcha, all right? Uh, uh, don't ki- kill someone. Okay. All right, write that down. No. Um, now, we, we see a principle in Scripture that calls us to submit to local authorities as long, listen, as long as it's not a command. Listen to this. This is huge. When don't I submit to authority in my life? Whenever you're commanded to do something God forbids or whenever you're forbidden from doing something that God commands. Anytime your local authority forbids you from doing something that God commands, I love a great example of this, is like Daniel who gets thrown into a lion's den because he's like, oh, cute little authority, but I serve God, okay? And so I'm going to pray. Or, or I love uh, Peter when he gets thrown in jail and they command him, you shall not preach this gospel. Peter's like, all right, okay, <laughs> gotcha. And what does Peter actually say? He goes, are we going to obey you or God? So, of course, of course, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the general decisions that the authority that God has put in your life is calling you to, despite your disagreements. Now, here's a big point about this. Look at verse 3. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. This is a jam-packed verse right here. And this has a lot to do with the situation you're in and, and submitting to the leadership that's there, and you disagree, or you feel like you could do it better. Solomon says, hold on. Don't, don't clock out. Hold on. Don't be quick to skirt away from the authority in your life. By the way, that's our tendency, isn't it? I, gotta, I, I like me. I, I got to be my own wise counselor. I like my ideas. I can do it best. And, and, and listen, there's cases where that may be true. You may have the skill to do what your boss is doing, what your authority is doing better than they can. You might have better ideas. You might have a better five-year plan. But listen, the most important thing that you and I need in life is not skill humility humility character right so so god will sometimes sovereignly put us right there in that place that we want to squirm out of and he's using that situation he, listen god used saul To make David the David that God was calling David to be. God said, you're going to be king, David. Anointing with oil and everything. It was awesome. It was a mountaintop. And then 12 years of running for his very life. And God was using, uh, by the way, one of the greatest works on this. If you're really struggling in one of these dynamics right now with authority and submission, uh, I want to recommend a book to you that will take you a good day to read. Now, if I can read it in a day, you could probably read it in half a day. But uh, it's a book called A Tale of Three Kings. A Tale of Three Kings. It's a story of David, Saul, and Absalom. And just how God uses submission and authority dynamics to change our lives. And one of the big ideas of this book is that David needed Saul in his life because David had Saul in his own heart. (laughs) And so sometimes God puts us in those places so that one day when we lead people, there's a humility in our leadership. And I I would say this, that listen, your desire to lead, it's not, you're this, you're going to be the same person. 
So if there's not a humility in your ability to submit and follow, there will not be a humility in your ability to lead. If there's not in you this humility to submit to who's there, there's not going to be a humility in your leadership that God's going to bless. So that's the big idea. Solomon's leading us to that. But I like how he speaks also to leadership. He says this in verse 7. No matter what the leadership is, notice, or sorry, verse 8, he says, no one, no matter what their power, notice this, no one has power over the spirit to retain the spirit, verse 8, and no one has power in the day of death. This is so cool. As big as the kingdom is, as powerful as the regime is, at the end of the day, Hitler is dead. Genghis Khan is dead. Every other great American leader, good or bad, famous, infamous, at the end of the day, no matter what your power, there's not enough power in this world to overcome death. The best of man is man at best. Subject to mortality, his power at the end of the day is limited. We're still human. This is, by the way, this is humility and leadership. This should cause us to realize that all the leadership, everything I have, listen, it's not something that I have achieved on my own. It's the grace of God. Whatever position of leadership you're in right now, it's a stewardship from God. It's the grace of God on your life, and it's temporary. It's temporary. You're going to give an account to God for what you did with what he gave you. Leading your family, leading your wife, leading your girlfriend, leading that ministry, leading in your workplace, leading in your home, leading your neighbors to the Lord, whatever that is, it's a stewardship. This causes us to come a lot lower, right, in our, in our roles, not getting too puffed up with pride in our leadership, but it's got to be service. Knowing this, verse 9 that there is a time, it's a time, it's a season, he tells us. So this is just some good wisdom in a world of power and authority. Okay, we're going to shift a gear here, all right? So we just hung out in this room talking about power and authority. Now we're going to go with Solomon. He's our tour guide. Now he's going to take us into a, a direction that's kind of out of the blue, all right? So let's go to this next one. The next thing that Solomon says is to fear God in a world of sin and hypocrisy. Okay, so let, let's get through this together. Come with me here, all right? Now he's going to talk about, and I think there's a connection here because he's talking about wicked leadership. And he's kind of looking out in the world going, okay, yeah, there's a lot of wicked leadership. There's a lot of abusive leadership. But the hardest thing sometimes is when is God going to judge that leadership? Like, why are they still in power? Why hasn't God removed them? Or whatever the case may be. And he observes this. He says in verse 10 of chapter 8, Then I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from the place of holiness. And they were forgotten in the city where they had done so. This also is vanity. Notice this. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Um, Solomon is describing the real world. The world we live in is a world of power and authority that we've got to go to today and tomorrow. It's also a world, he's been very privy to let us know, that this is a world of sinfulness. It's a world of sinfulness, and it's not a world out there. It's a world that we're a part of. It's a world that we have contributed to. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, he, he advocates here for the fear of God. 
Uh, we studied this last week. You can even check out our, we have an audio podcast on iTunes. You can check this out and listen to this message from last week where we talked about the fact that no one at the end of the day fears God. No one. Romans 3 says. Call to fear and live life in awe and wonder of God, but no one does. That, that's, the nature, that's the world that Solomon is observing. This is the world we live in. Um, but it's, it's, the, it's kind of like the worst kind of sin, though. You know, and I know that's like, oh, sin's the same. All right, okay. Um, well, it's not, all right? Like, uh, yes, all sin equals the wage of death. But uh, listen, yeah, a bomb's a bomb, but there's bigger bombs than little bombs, okay? Like, there's big sin bombs. And, and I think one of the most tragic sin bombs that can go off in our lives is he talks about hypocrisy. Like, it's one thing to be like a front door I rebel against God. It's a whole other thing to rebel against God and then cover it up with religion. He says they come and go from the place of worship. They go to church every Sunday and it, it's been described, right, like religion trying to deal with your sin. It's like, it's like trying to spray perfume on a, on a corpse. Sp- uh, spraying Febreze in a dumpster. It's a work in futility hypocrisy has a root issue. There's a sinfulness, there's a rebellion that he's talking about in the heart that is, he says, fully set to do evil, which is all of our, by the way, default position apart from the grace of God changing our hearts. But he's talking about the real world, a world of sin and hypocrisy. And and one of the most interesting things that he says, I think this is really relatable. He says, you know, and not only is hypocrisy so rampant, but I think, he says, I think what makes it so much more common, the reason why there's so many people that are living in secret sin and, and rebelling against God um, behind the scenes, he says, because, it's because there's no consequence. And because the sentence of judgment, he says, is not executed speedily, they're like, well, I mean, if I can get away with this, I'm going to keep doing this. You know what I mean? It's like if I rob a bank and I don't get caught, where's bank number two? You know what I'm saying? Like, that's essentially what he's saying. But Solomon says, though that might be how it seems, he says, it's much better for the person, he says, who fears God. Fear God, he says. Now, now Peter kind of talks about this in 2 Peter, and he says this. Uh, when it comes to Jesus' second coming, where God is going to judge sin, he says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Like God, you know, I thought I had an appointment. Was I going to go back to earth or something? I think, I don't know, is that next week? Uh, like God's not slack or lazy as some count slackness, but he is, look at this, he is instead long-suffering, right? This is, this is why judgment has been, has been held back, you could say, or hasn't been executed speedily in the words of Solomon, because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Isn't this beautiful? The scoffers go, all right, well, if Jesus is coming back, where is he? Is he lazy? Does he forget? Is he slack? He goes, no, it's his long-suffering. He's gracious. You know, we've got to remember this. I think for some people what we do is we confuse God's patience for his approval. Well, if he hasn't done anything now, he must just be okay with this. And, and the scripture is going to hold up to us a God who's incredibly full of love, so much love. And what makes this God of love so good is he's super just. He's super righteous. He by no means, the Bible says, will clear the guilty. Now, as a part of us that should well up with joy because we know that God is good and that wickedness will be judged, but there's a part of us that Solomon says should also well up with fear because I'm part of the problem. 
right? We talked about last week how my sin always looks worse on everyone else. Like, oh, you struggle with that? Yeah, me too, but you? Wow, all right? You really need to stop that, okay? And there's just this truth standing before a holy God. I mean, when we stop comparing ourselves to each other, we compare ourselves to the holiness of God, what we see is we are in the same kind of trouble as the worst kind of sinner we could imagine. And this is why the gospel comes in like a cool breeze, because the good news of God is that Jesus became our sin fully on the cross so that right now my security can be in the fact, listen, not that, okay, I'm good enough, I'm holy enough. No, Jesus was, and I wear that. I wear that before God. I don't have to try to work my way to him because Jesus, he did enough. He did more than enough. And so now I live my life not just to fear him, but I can love him. I love him, and that's the greatest motivator. He lo- I love him because he first loved me. Now, this is the world we live in, a world of sin and hypocrisy. We'll go through these next ones a little quicker. The third one, write this down, is that Solomon encourages us to trust God in a world of death and uncertainty. So he's telling us it like it is. This is the world we live in. This is probably a good part of parenting, right? I don't know if some of you guys have actually had to have some of these conversations with your kids, but hey, guys, here's how the world is. There's things like police officers, and there's power and authority. Hey, kids, there's things like sin in this world. I feel like that's a, a very unique thing, a unique conversation to have with, with your kids. The more that they are exposed to this world, the more they're exposed to this thing called sin. And also, they're exposed to all sorts of cover-ups and false definitions of what's really wrong in this world. So it's important to be telling our kids about what this world is really like. So that was a little quick parenting, a little talk for you, okay? But Solomon also says, here's what's also real in this world. This is a world of He's just telling it like it is. At the end of the day, here's the truth. This is a world of death and uncertainty. Death and uncertainty. He tells us in verse 14 of of chapter 8, there is a vanity which occurs on the earth, that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. What? And there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I say that this is also vanity. Verse 15, so I commended enjoyment. Because a man has nothing better under the sun in a world like this than to eat, drink, be merry, and watch football. I mean, it's really it, right? For this will remain with him all of his labor in life, all the days of his life. Now, skip down to verse 9. He continues to talk more about the uncertainty of life's happenings. You know, I thought that the just would be rewarded and the wicked would be punished, but it's the other way around. And he's kind of like, what is this uncertainty in life? Not what I expected. I had this expectation for this scenario, and it went the other way. The only thing that Solomon is certain about is verse 2 of chapter 9, that all things come alike to all. At the end of the day, no matter how righteous or wicked you see yourself, there's one thing coming to us all. He says, one event, chapter 9, verse 2, happens to the righteous and the wicked. One event, to the good and the clean and the unclean. To him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, as is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath as he who fears an oath. This is an evil thing that is done under the sun, that one event happens to all. So Solomon's observing life's happenings. This word happens occurs six times in this short passage. Solomon's looking at all the stuff that, that befalls man. And what, what he's found, what he's left with is this. He's left with tremendous uncertainty about life. Like, I thought if you reap, you sow. And, and here's the just, and they're suffering. He's like, what's up with that? Just total not theologically for him. And then he goes, here's the only thing that I'm certain of that's going to happen. I'm going to die. And so are you. 
And whether you're righteous or not, no matter who you are, whether you're in power or not, I mean, he's observing some really hard truths here. It's interesting in chapter 9, verse 11, I want you to see how he describes it even more. He says, I returned and saw, uh, verse 11 of chapter 9, that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. What? This is where Solomon's left. He's like, I mean, he's kind of, he knows that God is sovereign. He, he's not acting like he's, he doesn't know theology. But he's just, he said, okay, let's put God over here for a second. Let's just look at the real world. It, it's like, it's a gamble. It's like the thing, what's that thing where the, the, the thing goes down the, the thing? Um, you know, it, yeah, pegboard. It, it's, it's, it's this mystery. It's, it's a life filled with uncertainty. And here, here's, if there's one word I think that would define what Solomon is describing about life, is it's this. He, I think he would say, the longer you live, the more you realize that life in this world is incredibly disappointing. Now, you know, good morning. <laughs> Welcome. Really glad you joined us today at Solus Church. And, um. We just like to talk about how disappointing life is and you know now this is the whole nature of, of Ecclesiastes I know that's not like that doesn't really cater well to the the popular market of, of uh, popular church you know <laughs> just wants to lift your spirits but I think we need sometimes more than just a fake smile I, I think we need to think about these things Come on, because let's be honest, when you leave here isn't that not what you're wrestling with you're wrestling with the fact that you expected something to happen that didn't happen or something happened that you never dreamed would happen. Solomon's like, yeah, this is life in the real world, man. Life is filled with unmet expectations and unexpected disasters. And, and it's really, like, apart from God, this is like, where we're left is just kind of like with bitter disappointment. I'm like, I'm like way too familiar with bitter disappointment. I wish I was less familiar at 31 with bitter disappointment. I wish my mom was still here. I wish my wife's mom was still here. I wish, and how many times do I find myself like, I wish this would have worked out this way or that way. And here's what's so cool. Solomon goes, that's true. But I love what Romans 5 tells us. Romans 5, Romans 5 talks about a God who has a hope that doesn't disappoint. So now enter stage right, God. In a world of disappointment, is this not why God is so good? In a world of disappointment, God will never fail. God never lets down. Life does. But he talks about a way to walk through disappointment in life to where you don't lose heart. Because the one thing that we desperately need to stay the same, it hasn't changed, and that's who God is. And if we can know this God, so, so look at what he says. Did you notice verse 15? So I commended enjoyment. The, the nature of the disappointing nature of life is to be disappointed and experience disappointment. But he goes, but there's another way, he says, of enjoyment. Now, it kind of looks like turning a blind eye to all the problems and just sort of like drink all your problems away and, and eat all your problems away. And, you know, it's, I mean, if Five Guys is open, get there and just, just forget what you have to walk through in life and just get that double patty, double bacon thing and, and Cajun, fr- sorry, um, what time is it? But, you know. Solomon is just, he's talking about, it seems like a surface level way to deal with your problems, but I want you to notice verse 9, oh sorry, verse 7 of chapter 9. He says, go 
Eat your bread with joy. Chapter 9, verse 7. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already accepted your works. What a great explanation of, of, of the gospel. Stop trying to work so hard. God has accepted you as you are. Look at this. Let your garments always be white. A great foreshadowing of the gospel again there. Let your head lack no oil. Oil is a symbol of joy. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days. He doesn't sugarcoat it. All the days of your vain life. <laughs> I love that. Which he has given you under the sun all your days of vanity, for that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. Now, now Solomon is not getting away from the fact that life is really hard and, re- and, and it's real here. But he's saying, listen, there's a way to be welled up with joy no matter what happens to you. It's been said this way, right? That that, that is simply what happiness can bring. Happenings are the product, uh, or rather are the, the, the source of happiness. Happiness, it's based on happenings. What happens in my life? How's the traffic? How's the weather? But Solomon is saying, listen, despite all these happenings, you can have substantial joy in what you're walking through because of who God is, simply. Yeah, there's a lot of disappointment in life, but he says, but just stop for a second. Live joyfully with what you have. Because it's from God, who's a giver and he's good. And that's where he's leading us to think about. This is who God is. And that's the stabilizer of my joy. When I go through disappointment. His hope doesn't disappoint. I can enjoy, I can live with contentment. That doesn't mean there's not going to be sorrow of heart. But God is always good. That's a source of of joy. Can I give you a couple more here? Let's close out with these. Serve God, number four, in a world of greed and insecurity. All right, we're about to fold our last page here, okay? Serve God in a world of greed and insecurity. Everybody gets a gold star, by the way, when you leave today, okay? We don't have them uh, next week, all right? Verse 1 of chapter 11 says this. He says, cast your bread upon the waters. This is very poetic. For you will find it after many days. Give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. He just says, look at nature. If a tree falls down to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. That doesn't seem very insightful, but it's okay. Verse four. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Verse five. As you do not know what is the way of the wind, or how the bones grow, how the how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening, verse six, do not withhold your hand, for you do not know. There's the uncertainty which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both are alike, and will be good. Now. Solomon's already described the uncertainty of life. Like, uh, he's, now he's talking about even like your investments, how you save or spend your money, where you invest your money. And he's like, who knows? I know the mad dog guy is saying, I know, but you don't know. You, you don't know if, if that investment is going to return the profit that you're expecting. So, so how then should I live? Now, he, he talks about this counter way to live in a world that its tendency with so much uncertainty is to, to do this. It's to grip tightly to what I have. Because there's so much uncertainty and insecurity in this life, and for most of us, because we're not living for eternity, but just the life we have here on earth, what we tend to do is just accumulate as much as possible and hold on to it as long as possible. And then you have Solomon who enters here and he says, here's a different way to do it. He goes, don't withhold your hand. 
He says, cast your bread upon the waters. Bread has to do with provision. To be in that culture, to have bread, is to have a substantial meal. Give us this day our, our daily bread. So, and it seems reckless. Solomon's like, take what you have and just throw it in the ocean. Now, Solomon goes on to say, serve those who are in need. Almost to make a strong point to the person who is stingy and tight-fisted and, and greedy and, and, and because of all the insecurity, Solomon says, no, instead of living life like this, live your life wide open to the point that you look reckless. He's talking about something called generosity, right? Uh, generosity, which is, which is a characteristic of, of what God is like. We sing a song sometimes here on church called Reckless Love. You ever heard that song? And some people have some issues with it. Um, you know, God's love's not reckless. You know, I, I, know, I know. Remember, it's a song, okay? Poetry. You know, the Psalms say that God parted the, the, the seas of, Israel, of, of Egypt with his nostrils. It says that. In, but I don't think he really went, you know what I mean? Like, like, let's lighten up, okay? It's music, okay? It's poetry, all right? Um, but if you, really, if you really, like, loosen out of the, like, the tight, like, you know, just step back for a second and think about this. Reckless love. It looks reckless, right? Because just like taking my bread and throwing it out upon the water, chucking all my material goods into the intercoastal, it's like what, there's no return for you in that. Doesn't it feel that way with God sending his son Jesus? What does God get from me? He gets my life, but what, is, what, what good am I to him? It seems, it's such a beautiful way to think about how radical God is in his love and generosity. Which, by the way, this is what makes a Christian, I just sit here and I just enjoy it. I let his goodness just shower upon me like a waterfall. Because I realize there's nothing, listen, I'm not here to make God's life better. He sent his son Jesus into this world to make my life better. And it's crazy that he would do that. It seems reckless, right? But it's generous. And listen, a person who has been truly impacted by this generous love cannot live their life with their hands closed and their fists clenched. The only natural response to this incredibly generous love is to live our lives wide open with the same generosity. By the way, generous, I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about your time. I'm talking about your gifts. I'm talking about your whole life, man talking about opening up your home to your neighbors. I'm talking about opening up your schedule to God's interruptions for your day. Generous. A generous response to a generous God. We don't serve money in this world. We serve God. Amen? And I'm going to invite the band out for our last one here where we say this, that Solomon lastly gives us this wisdom. He says, and here's going to be our conclusion of this whole book. Serve God in a world of greed and insecurity, and then number five, remember God in a world of brokenness and vanity. I want you to read these final verses here with me. Chapter 12. After writing about the vanity of life, after writing about the brokenness of life, the uncertainty of life, the insecurity of life, the reality of life in a fallen world, Solomon closes this incredible book in chapter 12 by saying this in verse 1. Remember now your creator. In the days of your youth, 
Verse 6 says, remember your creator. Before the silver cord is loose or the golden bowl is broken or if a pitcher shattered at the fountain, hard times are coming or the wheel is broken at the well, there's some wheels to be broken ahead of us. But remember God, he says. He says, the dust will return to the earth as it was. The spirit will return to the God who gave it. This is what's coming. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is Vanity. Verse 9 says, and moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher, who's the author of this book, sought to find acceptable words that was written, that, that was written was upright, the words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. One shepherd hammering these points into our hearts over these past 10 weeks. It's been one shepherd doing that. And further, my son, be admonished by these things. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Here we go, verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments. For this is your and my all. For God will bring every work into judgment including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Here's the conclusion in a world of vanity, in a world of disappointment, in a world of pain, in a world of regret, in a world of sin. Let's make this personal. In your life of sin, in your life that seems like it's vanity, in your life of disappointment, here's the conclusion. God. Remember God. Remember God, he says, even in the days of your youth, as you're young, you got hard times ahead of you. There's a good time to start getting to know who God is in the midst of the chaos in this world. It's right now. It's not tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Wherever you're at, no matter how far you've been walking away from God, how long you've been walking away from God, he says right now, remember God. It's the God factor. It changes everything. There is a God who's going to bring every thought into judgment. There is a God who gives meaning to our lives. There is a God who sent his son Jesus into the world so that we would have more than the vanity of this life. In fact, Romans tells us that it's actually God who subjected this world to vanity so that in hope we might reach for him. Remember God. Remember God. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out soulischurch.com.